Hey, 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 what's going on? Welcome to another episode of Angular Air. I'm your host, Justin Schwarzenberger, and today we are gonna be talking building component libraries. Uh, before we can jump into that, let's give a little announcement about uh, Angular Up. Uh, conference is coming up in Israel. It's one of Europe's largest Angular conferences. It brings top international and local speakers, and will also include a magical two-day tour to explore the beauty of Israel. So that event's gonna be on June 25th, in Tel Aviv. And more information can be found on angular-up.com. So check it out. All right, on our show today, we have some panelists and a couple guests. Joining us as panelists today, we've got Alyssa Nichol. Alyssa, what's going on? Hey. And we've got Austin with us. Austin, what's going on? What's up, guys? It's hat day on NGAIR. It is, it is. We got uh, Mike Brocky. What do you have, Mike? I got my cookie monster on, man. C is for component libraries. All right, and our guests for today, they're on the hat bandwagon as well. We've got Ed, Ed, what's going on? Hey, what's up? Wear my Mickey Mouse ears because I don't have anything else. You got the dual hat going on, I like that. Yeah, hatception. Sweet, and we got Dimitri joining us too. Dimitri, what's going on? Hey, what's up? Um, don't have a hat, sorry. <laughs> But you do have something on your head, so that, that probably counts. Okay. Um, I don't have anything, but hey, next time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ed and Dimitri, why don't you uh, tell our viewers a little about yourself uh, real quick, get everybody up to speed with you. Ed, how about you first? Sure. So yeah, my name's Ed Morales. I work at Charita, and I'm the UI architect for Covalent, which is a, a library that's built on top of um, Angular Material. Uh, and I, I'll talk about it later, uh, what it's used for, but uh, I've been working in Toyota for five years now, but working on Covalent for a year and a half, kind of, ever since the previous NGConf, actually, where we decided to go with Angular 2, well, Angular now, but the rebrand. <laughs> nice, very nice, cool. All right, and Dimitri? So, I'm CTO at Valor Software, working as uh, out open source developer for a couple of years already after NGX Bootstrap. Uh, before that, it was NG2 Bootstrap. Hopefully, you will hear me and rename your imports already. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah, the, the whole the legendary NGX, right? Yeah. Yeah. So somebody, somebody here maybe had a hand in starting something with that. Austin? I guess he's just going to raise his hand. <laughs> no comment, huh? Yeah. So uh, we we it's kind of an unofficial thing, right? Like we talked about it on Twitter, and you know, I named my projects NGX because I had them Angular two before, and it was like, oh well, now Angular two is Angular four. So what am I going to do? <clears throat> and I didn't want to name it like ng dash, right? Because that's what Angular's stuff is. So ngx seemed like, oh, this is like ng2 or ng4, but it's just like infinity x. And by projects, you are talking about component libraries, right? That's correct. Which happens to be the subject of our show. So. Let's uh, dive into that and start talking about that. So when we're talking about building component libraries for Angular, um, what are we referring to in terms of a component library and, and why do we want something like that? Anybody? 
reusable components everywhere. Now, initial, initially, um, when it was Angular Alpha 29, and there was no libraries at all, uh, and kind of, we are outsourced development company, and we need something to reuse, because uh, when we start a new project, usually the same stuff, we are repeating all the time, test tasks and all that stuff, and we need to use something, something small, fast, and reusable. This is when we go for a components. At that moment, I have to create boots, uh, G2 Bootstrap, Dragula tables, and all that stuff. So all our projects could reuse the components we share between each other. So it was the way to start write st stuff for. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, go, sorry. Go ahead. Oh uh, yeah. In 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 our case, it was uh, it came up as a need, but. Uh, it was an enabler for Cheruta to start centralizing their components to, to like, to Dimitri's point, for reusability and to centralize all the, those components somewhere because there was a lot of silos in our company, so we were trying to break them, and we broke them, actually. And now every single project is using Angular, and they're using Material and Covalent, so it was a way to, for, to us to work as an internal community in, in the company. Also, since yeah. we're, we're based on a Material, uh, there were gaps because it was like alpha at that point and some components that were not on the roadmap. <laughs> uh, but we were trying to to add components that aren't in the material roadmap. We're not trying to compete with them. It's just basically an add-on on material. So, yeah, when, we, so when I started doing it, like we uh, we wanted to like you know, do open source stuff and we wanted to give back to the community and we found these like things that, you know, everyone does all the time that are, you know, they're not necessarily like proprietary to our business or anything like that. And we wanted to, you know, have some way to give back to the community and, and, and start sharing these with people and get people's feedback and, and, you know, you know, maybe if they want to do some pull requests, that's awesome too. Right. But, we you know wanted to kind of get it out there and then as we started developing like more product lines like ed was saying like you want to have a consistent style between all those and so that was like the point where um that was the point where it went from being like a little folder in our in our you know project that says like global or common or whatever to being like an actual full-blown project and that way we can like actually start reusing it uh, all over the place. So it seems like everybody here kind of started off with the strategy of let's build a component library. Um, but I don't think that's always gonna be always the case. I think that some component libraries out there, even if it's just a library of a single component, grew organically of, hey, I created this thing that helped me within my project that I needed to create, I don't know whether or not it's a grid or a control or a progress bar, anything of, hey, I need to create this and I want to abstract it as part of my project. And then I realized, hey, somebody else could actually use this thing. So maybe I'll take a look at abstracting that out and what I need to do to, to maybe release the NPM or some other way of internally sharing it within uh, the organization. When we started doing it, it was, we tried to always make them generic where we can use them like internally. Um, and that made it easier to extract them, but sometimes it can be really painful to extract those, like if it's coupled to a lot of your business logic, and that might be uh, 
a barrier for people that might want to, you know, think about, you know, open sourcing or creating a component library. Like you have to be very conscious in the way that you design these components that they're so abstract that they could be reused in other places. Yeah, so. I think, go ahead, Dimitri. So the thing is, I am working on one proprietary libraries components, which is kind of really linked it as a business logic. But in some way, uh, it, it reuses in GX Bootstrap, but in some way, uh, we could uh, open source something from it, what is kind of more or less generic. But the part which is um, highly coupled to how it works or how it behaves, this kind of library could not be extracted for sure. So. Yes, there are some things somewhere, but it's still components and still reusable libraries because it's used across several projects inside of the company. But it can cannot be open sourced because of you know enterprise things. In 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 our case, it wasn't more about abstracting for the sake of abstraction. It was more about okay, we have two, three end products, and what are we using that's the same thing on all of them? And then we chose what to abstract from all of them to stop code duplication and to have a centralized way to maintain them and all that. Um, so we never just abstracted because it was, oh, we can do it. Uh, uh, getting into the public was a, a step after that. It was basically because of an internal need first. Yeah, for us, um, one of the things I like to look at is this abstraction of components and really starting there in terms of a um, inside a project, a single project, right? And thinking about in terms of um, how can I, am I gonna make components that are gonna be shared across features within that project? And how do I need to make them decoupled and, and reusable just in that one project, right? And it can really start there in terms of a component library that um, you start doing these patterns that you need for this reusability for components, right? using things like inputs and outputs only and and trying to avoid the coupling of that so that you can now use these across feature modules in your app. And then from there, that can grow into something that you're like, oh, well, these are chunks that I could use in another app, or these are chunks that I could um, open source and make available elsewhere and, and a little bit easier to start that road because you've already architected them in that way. Yeah, I mean, we when we were doing it, I like to be a little abstract in, in the way that I do things. And we actually like started out, okay, if we use this, if we use something that is like 80% similar, right? In And we're using it in multiple different components. Like maybe it's like a admin page and a search page, right? Like at that point, I'm like, these are so similar. Let's get figure out a way that we can like merge these and then put these in some type of like global folder. And that's really where a lot of our components got started was that type of process. Uh, Ed, Dimitri, did you guys start out that way on something internally on a single project or was it really kind of from the get go you knew I'm gonna build this thing as an, an external library? So uh, we had a lot of projects on AngularJS and we had to move to next Angular uh, at the early times. So and for sure we used Bootstrap and Bootstrap components, but there was no, you know, there was no library for Angular Bootstrap at the moment. So we had to roll something 
initially internal, but then, you know, it's easier to publish to NPM and reuse and all these GitHub rigs. But yes, it started from one project and our personal needs that, you know, we need those components, which we was already using AngularJS, and we started to migrate all the things we use into Angular. Yeah, it, it was kind of like the same for us. Uh, we were we had a, a couple of projects in Angular 1, and then we wanted to migrate to Angular uh, 2, well, Angular. And uh, so we created a repo just internal in the, in the company where we already knew, because on the migration process, we already knew which components might be reused in and, and different parts and all that. So we had a already like a light suite of components that we were like, okay, we need those abstracted. Um, as we moved forward, we added more uh, with new stories, new features on um, the two ex two experience. Uh, but there was a thin line because we have our real jobs, which are the internal product products, and then our hobby, which is the uh, the open source one. Well, at that point, it wasn't open source, but the platform one. Um, so it was kind of like a give and take because there was times where we needed to just finish the story, and times where we could actually take a step back and think about abstracting it. That's a good, that's a really good point. Like, you know, I don't think any of us on the call have the uh, luxury of like being a full-time open source uh, engineer. And so like when you're working at a company, your FTE job, your full-time job, and like you guys decide to, you know, maybe open source, like uh, how is that, you know, how do you split your time, right? Like it gets really hard. And one of the things that we did is uh, we really, we respond to issues and, you know, if, as long as you don't get behind on issues, it doesn't really get that bad, right? If you just spend like 30 minutes every morning, just responding to everyone, like awesome. And you get a lot of positive feedback. People make PRs. Awesome. And, <clears throat> but there's like this balance and like, okay, this is kind of like a pet project almost. And where's that line and where do you spend your time and how do you advocate to get more time to spend there? And really our projects are just around specific needs within our application. So we really just drive our open source projects to be and our component libraries to be things that we need internally. Now, if someone makes a PR and like they've got this awesome idea, as long as it like fits in the vision, yeah, we want to like support that and, and collaborate with them. But in terms of like features and people, you know, raising, you know, raising issues for X feature and things like that, like if it doesn't fit within that business need, then that those are not things that we really work on. And it helps communicate the business value of working on open source. Oh, I need to work on the open source because well, we don't have an input box that does a specific thing. And so it's easy to communicate that to the biz dev people. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the decision to open source and how we make that and stuff. Um, so what, what, I mean, you talked a little bit about like what, what drove you guys to decide, look, we, we have this internal thing, this library, we need it. Um, and we see a benefit for that, but then these decisions that come in, in, in terms of okay, well now we got to manage that, and we got to keep the direction of the the project going for our needs internally, but also now meet the needs of this external customer. Like, what are the tricks that come involved with that? Uh, it's not only the tricks which come to support the library, but uh, when you have library which. Okay, first of all, uh, I was internally gratitude to open source, and I was my willing to 
payback because I built my company on MinStack. It's Node.js, it's NPM, it's all actually open source. Uh, after the years of using proprietary libraries, C-sharp, C++, whatever, uh, it was awful. You need to buy a library to use it and you have to use some kind of disassembler to understand how it works inside of it. And then when I get to this community, which open sources all the things, you can build your business on open source, not paying for anything. And how you, how you should pay for it. You should open source your code. You should bring something new or your idea or help the community to, you know, move forward because I couldn't imagine two years ago that I will be maintaining a library which has quarter million of downloads per month. It's crazy because I was doing it for myself actually and for my company. I wasn't expecting such kind of, you know, that it, that it will happen sometime. <laughs> it's crazy. That's a really good point that you just said there. Like a lot of companies in the past, uh, they, um, they, a lot of companies in the past would, you know, buy these projects and things like that, and they weren't open source and things like that. Now people are, companies are starting to use open source, and you know, what, there is a cost associated to that, and those people need to understand that. And that, and as a open source consumer, like it's almost like if you have the opportunity, you know, at your job, you should open source to give back to pay for what you're using or pull request or whatever that may be. And that's a really good idea. So it's one of the simplest things which we do actually, and what I'm trying to teach my guys in the company is that if you're using an open source project and you have an issue, don't create an issue, create a pull request. So give something, something back. Because imagine like we have a small company, like 50 people, yeah but sometimes we'll be huger. Or if you get lucky, we'll get involved like huge companies which has two, 3,000 employees each one. And if at least 10% of those people will be given some kind of payback, uh, we are code documentation, pull requests with code fixes, bug fixes. Imagine how fast and better can become open source in general. Yeah, yeah in our case, like, uh, you guys mentioned that uh, the the companies before were protective or, or, or jealous about the code, uh, the code base. So like even if it was like a single line of code, they would say like, oh, it's proprietary. So like I'm not gonna share it. And uh, but when we started building the cloud, uh, it was basically following the material spec. Uh, it had Angular material and all that. So it's, everything was open source, and it was just uh, UI components and, and services, which our company is a data company, so it, it, it wasn't really uh, some to not open source, <laughs> basically. Uh, so Interior wanted to be out there as a company, and we wanted to actually help out the community, because I've been using, <laughs> I, I, this is my first time in open, open source world, so I've been using a lot, and I always wanted to, uh, to find a way to contribute, and our team also wanted to find a way somehow. And the best way of doing it was we took our suite of components and services and all that, all our platform, it's, which is also design patterns and, and et cetera. And we're like, you know what? Let's just do it. And it was a win-win a for us in Terrier because we were helping out the open source community and Terrier was out there too, making a name in the, the open source and UI world. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's great for, you know, if you're if your company like there's so many intangible benefits if you want to try to like sell, you know, your your boss on open source. There's so many, right? Like whether, you know, we what we what I I don't expect people to have pull requests. I think if you go in with that perception, like you'll be a little disappointed. <laughs> um so my my perception of it is, you know, I just wanted to get back and, but you know, there's going to be a lot of people using it. So that's free QA. Right. And in the off case that they do contribute back, right. You have, you know, you do get that contribution and it can come in a variety of formats, whether that's features or unit test or documentation. And then the other thing is it's huge for recruiting. Like if you decide to open source your component library, like, it's huge. And, and a lot of times you can even pull your recruits from that are contributors to your library. To that yep. point though, of wanting to get a uh, pull request, there's different types of pull requests you can get. Um, yeah. So it'd be great if somebody found an issue and they created a pull request and actually resolved it. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Um, but there's also other pull requests. Um, so maybe there's a pull request um, that actually just is a failing test. Uh, that explains the scenario of, hey, this is what I tried to do, and this is the test that's broken on it, which essentially gives you a starting point of doing some TDD to resolve the issue of, hey, I've got a test scenario that I just need to make pass uh, based off of a failing test. That That's even, a, a, it's never gone past CI, uh, but it's still a great pull request to give you a good place to start. Um, if not, issues are also a decent place too. This is the thing which I really miss, Jasmine, and uh, JavaScript testing in general. Uh, in older languages, there are tests which are created to fail, like fa especially failing tests, especially for those cases when you need to report an issue, you're building you know, a test case which will fail, and that's, that's fine, but it will be marked separately, like you have several issue, known issues you have to fix. It would be really good if Jasmine will have it someday i think one of the benefits of actually being out there too is uh well internally in, in the whole the whole company and also in the open source world is just because there's some use cases that you don't think about when you're testing a component or when you're building it and you have a whole army of qas out there uh doing crazy things with your components and that you were like man i never thought about that it's like and, 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 and they write an issue, right? And even if it's not a PR, it's just a, a good way for you to find out, okay, yeah, we need to fix that or improve that because, or maybe it's a use case that you might want to use an internal product and you didn't think about. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes like, no, 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 it's not supposed to work like that. Please don't use it like this. So I've got a question. Uh, have you guys run into uh, anything that, where you've got a feature request or, or a PR or something to, to change your library, to add some functionality to it that somebody wants that you may not want to take on internally in your projects. And then how do you deal with that in terms of guiding the direction of this library that you still need to use on your internal projects, but you know want to kind of control that a bit? Or do you just say, look, that's th this library code, it's, it's out there, it's going to morph, and we're just going to ride with it? Uh, yep, actually, a couple of that. Uh, 
because I plan to support Bootstrap 3 and 4. And there are some features in Bootstrap 3 which is not going to be part of the 4. Why? Because now it's a part of the browser. So there are a couple of pull requests which will be there for internally for those guys who are looking for like affix feature. But now you can do it with browser. It will be native. It will work faster. But there should be a place wherever they can find it. Okay, this feature will not be included. Why? Because you don't need it already as a JavaScript, because you have it natively. Use it. Yeah, uh, so it, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of both, actually. But for the most part, it's just whatever is on the roadmap. Uh, it's like, because there, there was, a, like, for instance, there was a PR, well, an issue about creating a component for Google Maps. And we were like, mm, I don't know about that. That doesn't really fit the enterprise world that much. So uh, there, we do reject some components. Or, but when we do that, or a certain feature, we try to point them out into another third-party library that maybe does that, or help them out some, some way to achieve what they want. Uh, but yeah, we do try to keep track, uh, focus of our roadmap. and. And if it's small features for an existing component, we we try to like analyze it if it makes sense uh, on the on the feature. Is your roadmap available for people? Um, kind of no, not right now. It, it's inter an internal roadmap, <laughs> but there uh, I do we do need to put it out there because we had a lot of requests about okay uh, we have like my milestones for like one or two releases, but never farther than that. So we do need to uh, just put it out there, yeah. For, is there, so people know. For all three of you who've actually done the component library, is there anything else other than, you know, maybe the framework being requested to grow outside of what it is right now? Like, is there anything else outside of that that's been a negative for open sourcing? Some people can be a little difficult. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? I'll let the other guys. <laughs> there could be several um, funny pull requests, uh, which has awards which I will not pronounce here. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people, you know, they you ask them to fill out like a GitHub form, they don't fill out the form, right? And they, uh, you know, they. My favorite is when they post a, a, a stack of the build error and it like includes their private IPs and things. Those, those are my favorite. And there's no description. It's just the stack. And oh, so, the, there's it one, one's even worse where it's like just a title saying it fails blah version. And you're like, okay, but how they're replicated? <laughs> like, what do I do to try to find out the problem? <laughs> Right. It does not work for my application. Please fix it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but then my application, I can't share the code with you. <laughs> I think that illustrates the importance, I think. And it's part of, you know, it's a lot of stuff to take on to decide to open source a library and some code and all these th parts that go along with it. And I think part of it is trying to establish expectations for the thing that you're open sourcing ahead of time, right? Like, can you... Um, describe right off the bat what the intent is of this library. Can you have some availability of your roadmap right off the bat? Can you set these expectations on um, submitting issues? Uh, the Angular CLI has a great template for submitting issues and describing here's the information that we're looking to collect. You know, you, you almost want to set these things up ahead of time as you open source this thing to manage those expectations and help people um, 
give you the feedback that, that you want that's helpful to you and, and helpful to them as well. I had this idea of like making these, uh, like I think there should be different levels of open source. Like the first level is like me on my own time. Like I decided just I'm going to write something cool and just throw it out there and I'm never going to touch it again. So please don't block a bug. <laughs> the second one is like, okay, I built something cool at work, but it doesn't really benefit any revenue. So it's going to be hard for like people, me to spend time on this. And I did it at work, so I don't want to do it at home. Right. And then there's the third one where it's like, your company makes revenue based around your open source projects. So like support, and there's going to be all those things and people are, you know, whether it's, you know, Google or, you know, a huge company like that, that, you know, intangibly indirectly makes, you know, revenue from these projects, you know, there's a, there's a higher level of uh, expectations there. And I, I, had this idea of like making this like a little badge that you could put on it, but I never did it. Well, doesn't that kind of already, not the badge, but aren't there like partially open source projects out there or not really? I thought it kind of already existed. Yeah. The, the counterpoint to, the, to uh, Austin's idea there is uh, aren't those just called licenses? Uh, <laughs> well, if it's MIT. I'm, I'm partially being funny to be clear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes and no. Like, you could MIT something and it could be your own and you could MIT something at work, right? So that's two different, like, expectations, I feel like. I don't know. No, um, but to expand upon what you're saying a little bit, um, the idea of having a contributing document or a code of conduct uh, in terms of to be able to... Um, almost guide people to give you the information that you need as much as possible, as well as having evidence of things to point back at um, if they're not following what your guidelines are of how to contribute and assist with a project. So how did you guys determine whether, you know, whether you wanted to like buy, you know, we talked about in the olden days where we bought and people still do that, right? Like people still buy Kindle UI and, and, you know, there's also, you know, when I'm talking about buy versus build, there's also like, at one point do you say, okay, I'm not going to buy it, but I'm going to use an open source library. And that's kind of the same thing versus you just going off and building it. And where was that line? And how did you guys like decide, where did you guys decide to draw that? Well, and like, everybody's got these libraries out here now. All three or four of us are talking about these things that are now available. So now I, I have to choose, do I use one of yours? You know, whether I buy one or use one of yours or do I start creating my own, right? I think like in, in, in the Cologne case, it's, if, you're, if you want to use like the material spec and the material library, Cologne is the right fit because it's just, it's built on top of it. So the reason we, we didn't want to buy anything is because we loved uh, the roadmap that Material had and we wanted to use it a lot. And, and we didn't want to like, internally, we didn't want to go into like discussions about how should a button look, how should uh, a flow of a, of a design work. Uh, we just wanted to build product features and not worry about the flow that much. So that's why we, we chose the, <laughs> we chose the, the, the material spec and the material library. And then we just uh, wrote, uh, wrote on top of it the things we needed. 
And it was just like a natural set to open source that because, I mean, everything was out there already, so make it available too. Um, yeah. Me as a consumer, I hate yeah, audio problems here. Me as a consumer, if I want to use the Covalent stuff, am I deciding to use that and the material stuff, or am I just getting yours? No, it's 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 both. Like if you use material, you can you use Covalent on top. If you're using Covalent, you're going to use material under the covers either way. Uh, so so it's 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 basically a bundle once you get Covalent. Uh, so like for instance, like material has like buttons and tabs and all that. And if you use Covalent, you get like an extension panel, stepper, file up, uh, file input, and a loader mask, and among other things, right? So all following the material spec layouts, material. And so, like Austin was saying, like wh why would uh, me as a consumer decide I want to go with that, say over something like purchasable, like Kendo or something? I don't know. It's like, at what point do we decide? that versus then also just making it on our own or taking that on. I mean for me like Kendo's UI components, you know, they're they're nice. Like they have everything, kitchen sink included. Um but with that comes penalties, right? You have to, you know, they work on all frameworks. So that means your uh you Maybe if they work in Angular, it's just a wrapper. And if they work in React, it's just a wrapper, which means they implemented all the DOM manipulation, all those things internally, and you're taking the penalty for that download when you're doing that. You're also kind of violating principles of touching the DOM and things like that. And we wanted something that was, you know, just fit the need that we needed to have and and did it very lightly. Like, and when we did that, you know, in the past, I've actually bought, you know, we, we bought Kendo and I spent like, I could have wrote Kendo twice in the amount of time that I spent trying to customize one of their components. So it's like, what, you know, at that point, like for me, it's like, okay, does this do 90% of what I want it to do? And if it doesn't, that's when I start building it because that last 10% is painful. Well, and I think a lot of times people can be naive about, they can either like willingly be naive, like, oh, our project won't expand beyond this, or they can, you know, just not be thinking ahead or planning ahead to that last 10%, or sometimes even, you know, depending on how custom or crazy your project is, the last 50%, right, of things that you need to build out. And so I think something just always to have in the back of your mind of, you know, this might not be all, it might not cover everything, because you're completely right, Austin. I've gotten there where you're using something and you're like, and now it's time to customize. <laughs> so, On the also, flip side, though, on the flip side, you can be naive about building it yourself. I mean, hmm. virtualized data tables are kind of hard to build. <laughs> <laughs> I was so naive, right? Or, you know, charts or whatever that may be, right? Like when you start getting into that stuff, like it's just, it's kind of a rabbit hole. So you need to Brace yourself when you go down that with something complex. Mm. Yeah, but but Austin, you made a good point. Uh, when you build something, if it's like coupled with a framework, in this case, uh, for instance, Covalent's coupled with Material in Angular, uh, you take advantage of all the the efficiency features and like native events and 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 
and on push, change detection, et cetera. And, and you follow the rules about not changing DOM using the renderer and animations uh, and, and blah, blah, blah. So you, you basically create a, a component library that's, that's going to be 100% effective for Angular versus another one that might uh, be, uh, I don't know, might have issues when rendering uh, like 10 things or 20 things because it's trying to fit like every single framework. Guys, I suppose we shouldn't forget that uh, the more generic your solution is, the more slow it. Uh, so the more generic, the more use cases you support in your component, it makes it slower because it's bigger, it supports most more use cases. But the good thing about Angular that you can build composable components. It's not fully working, unfortunately. So for example, if you have some kind of element and attribute and you want to create composing, composable component, it will not be uh, dynamically enabled. So if you dynamically add attribute, it will not go and grab your component and it will not work, unfortunately. There are some static use cases when you can add additional functionality to your existing element by composing web components in one logic by, for example, communicating them via service, for example, or something like that. That's good, that's truly good, but uh, the more generic you go in general, the bigger component is, uh, the harder to understand and change it, customize it. The more generic it is, the harder to, for example, how hard to customize the alert comparing to date picker. <laughs> it's completely different things. You know, and I think one more thing on the um, purchase versus the finding something out there to use versus building your own too. I mean, one thing to keep in mind with the purchase is this idea and concept that when you go that route, you're getting something that's supported potentially by another company that's going to be on top of, you know, taking care of issues on top of that. And you kind of have this expectation of like, okay, I paid for it. So now there's going to be this like world-class support on it, right? And I'm going to get that. And it's going to have this long-term life and I don't have to worry about, well, are the maintainers going to go away from that project or are they not going to be fixing issues rapidly? And so I think that's one of the positives of deciding, well, maybe we'll buy this library because it already does these things and we can feel good about it from a business standpoint, you know? One day I bought, I bought uh, Windows for some money and I was thinking that it will be supported and never will be lagging or dying or blue screen of this. But, you know, you pay money, but Yes, it's supported. I have a lot of patches, but still it fails a lot. This is true, but then again, Windows is very, you know, general, doing a bunch of things, right? So it's got a bunch of marks it needs to succeed on. Yeah, okay, well, let's, um, let's jump on and move to maybe uh, talking about some of the patterns that we discover and face when we go to build out these libraries. You know, I think we talked a little bit about that in terms of, you think about these reusable components, so you need to have them decoupled and not be tied into things. You need to not have them necessarily expose deep business logic, especially if you're gonna open source them and stuff like that. So what about like patterns and things that you've come across, specifically building in the Angular world for that you take on as you decide, like this is how I'm architecting this component library, different from how I'm architecting stuff within my app. So for the most part is um, when, you're, when you're building a component library, you think about, to, uh, you try to create uh, the components as stateless as you can, or like 
pretty much just stateless components, uh, where you have just inputs, and depending on those inputs, they change the behavior of it. And whatever you do inside of it are affected by those inputs and create outputs. That's pretty much like everything you need to do. Once you start adding services into some components, like it's just starting to get crazy and coupled and all that. And and that's some maybe when when you start going that way, it's probably a component that should live in a product, not not in a platform. I mean, don't get me wrong, you can still use a service to communicate some components and all that, but let's say if you have a, a file upload component, let's say, and you have a service there where you pass a URL, there's there might be something wrong with that design. One thing that happens probably more often than not is when you check in code that has like tokens and stuff like that in it that's specific to your company, right? Like those are things like you have to be aware of when you're designing these things. First part on which games, uh, when you build everything, you test your application for several snowflakes and same came in system.js user. No, nobody has a problem with system.js users except me. Oh my God, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so yeah. how, how to configure all this, you know, but uh, what, what I was saying already about patterns is composable components. This is what we use in applications to separate our logic by some switchers if we need to. So we have usually some kind of component and we have additional sets of functionality. But on one hand, um, composing via Angular components with uh, directives is only one part. Other huge part which actually allows this is dependency injection, injection with inversion of control, which actually allows us to use different dynamic behavior for the same components and same structures. So, and as for dynamic components, uh, if you were starting far, far away, writing your library, you should, at this time, you should rewrite it for four times to still be able to show models, for example, drop downs, any dynamic components you can show. So it's uh, teach us to write us some abstractions layer from Angular <laughs> implementation to not rewrite your whole library each time. And of course, um, Reusability of services, most probably, because when you write in a library, uh, you're trying to make it as reusable as possible, and it ends up that you can see not only same, you know, how it looks the same way, or you see how it behaves in the same way, so you start to reuse behavior. So this pattern comes in mind mostly. I think one good example of that is uh, using providers on a component uh, decorator, right? Uh, and you can provide a service into your component at that level and that metadata, the component metadata, and but it, it locks that component into that service, right? And there's no way to now replace that service if you want to do this composition at a higher level. Um, so that's one example of, of things in, in terms of like, like the inputs and stuff like that. Thinking about when I architect this component, like how easy is it to have other things around here, make decisions and give stuff to that so that it's free and independent of those things. And, and then now you have that reusability throughout. Not to use default inject uh, injectors usually, because uh, 
if I understood you correctly, please confirm that when you, for example, write in a component, you can use a provider for this particular component, and then you draw the area of usage for the service, and you have like isolated area, correct? So the thing is, you can use an injector to just create it as a default value. If you don't have some kind of additional composable element which will provide you with some kind of implementation, you can just go and grab default one, but not through drawing your injection part, but through injector itself. Of course, it's it's against dependency injection because Angular is not dependency injection; is some kind of mix with service locator, but it works. Who cares? Right, and I think I, I, that's the point, right? Like, if we have a component that uses a URL service unique for it, right? We put that in the providers of that component metadata. Now, somebody else who uses it has no real way to replace that URL service with some other usage that they, they could make advantage of that component that you have. So if, if you're aware of those sort of patterns, then you allow that, just like what you're saying, you know, allow somebody to implement something different for that for their needs, and now you've got this really nice reusable component at that point. Yeah, also something to take into account is, um, and basically this is my Bible to some extent, uh, atomic design. Uh, we always try to create the component as small as with single responsibility as possible, and then just use them as Legos. It's just like put them in certain order and do something differently. Um, because once you start to build in like this monolithic components that try to do everything, it, it just gets crazy to maintain them, crazy to add a feature, and, and, and I don't know, like, 20, 40 inputs to <laughs> to make it do something. So that that's one of the things we try to uh, do in our library to just like try to think of the smallest component ever. There's sometimes we need to wrap a few of them and create a component around that, and that's a molecule, if you will, um, and then we go on from there. Hey, so uh, real quick on that point, like. At what point do you start thinking about the API of your component? And we talk, I kind of refer to that when we talk about, you just mentioned inputs, right? And all of a sudden I, I have this component that needs to take in five different types of inputs of data that it needs to work with. Do you start thinking about maybe making that one input with a model structure that I'm handing into that? Or do you just keep going down the point of going, well, I'll go up to three, four inputs and then maybe now this feels like it's doing too much? I think there's a really thin line there that, uh, and, I, and I'm pretty sure we've made that mistake <laughs> before about just adding single inputs and, and then we end up with like 10, 15 and we're like, all right, um, we did something wrong here. Um, but so now, now we're more careful with that. Uh, so the problem with having a single input with an object model is that uh, Angular's change detection only throws the input when it when you change the whole object, not a part of it. So there's pros and cons around there. Uh, like if you do that single input, yeah, it's it's a linear API, but the you can pass pretty much anything on it, and it might not work. And then if you change an input there, it might not, the component might not change. Uh, versus if you have separate inputs, then you have more control about what's allowed in every single one of them and when the component changes. I think it's it's being more declarative about your inputs is is really the route that you should go, and you can get more change detection benefits from that. You're not having to watch your values. The other thing is this isn't the jQuery days where <laughs> you have one options object, right? Like we can build out these very declarative inputs and and you know have typings and all these things around them and 
and we should be doing that instead of you know just one massive options object. Yeah, sure, uh, I'm trying to follow the rule. Like, have under five inputs for your component, but it's sometimes it's completely impossible. But still, this is a kind of good rule. And in order to achieve this, you know, limitation in five uh, inputs for your component, I'm starting to think like. Uh, does it really matter to have, for example, these configuration options inside of HTML? So it does affect your logic, but does not affect your UI representation. So it has more sense to allow, for example, one config option, which could be bindable, and any logic which you need to you know, configure independently for several uh, components could be there. But if this is, for example, a wrapper class, yes, it makes completely sense to be inside of the HTML. And based on the logic, this you're starting to divide. OK, those inputs are fine. Those inputs could be grouped inside of the configuration object and should be, shouldn't be part of your HTML anyway, because they affect behavior and they don't affect how, you, how it's displayed. So and you're trying to keep this, this small amount to then see like the full list of <laughs> inputs configured something, and it still will be uh, next person will came and sees it. Okay, it doesn't look good, and more more of it when you have string setters, the most you know anti pattern I have seen, and most probably will have to write codelizer rule for it. For it is string setters. How often you see double quotes and inside single quotes? And the binder. No, you you have seen it. Yeah, yeah it's, seen it. they use it all the time. Why? Yeah, yeah because otherwise the ID and the tool is complaining because it's it's not a known attribute, right? No, if you use WebStorms, that's fine. Use language service, that's fine. And more of it, when you use this use this stuff, you just compare your AOT builds when you use string setter and you using a binding. It will be comparable, smaller, for sure. So the recommendation is to use the string. Sure, if it's just a string setter, of course. Cool. Good. Good point. <laughs> All right. So hey, there's a lot of stuff that goes into uh, building your a library, right? All these different factors. What about? Um, tools to work with them and you're talking like tools just on any level on the build on the deployment on documentation all that kind of stuff let's talk a little bit about that as we get near the end of the show here so uh the cli of course uh we definitely uh let's quote quote enforce the cli in all our products in Terita because we don't want people to start their own building process and then have issues and it's like, can you help us? And we're like, well, we don't know what you were trying to do. So we were trying to standardize the way the product is built and deployed. Hence our choice of using the CLI. And uh, and it just makes everything a lot easier to test uh, with your own like uh, environment. And then and, and it has like, well, end-to-end -end testing uh, and, and, and karma under the cover. So it's, it's pretty, easy to have all the tooling in just one place and you just focus on the commands and configuration. Now, are you using the CLI for your library code as well as to host a sample app in there to use that library code or is it just standalone, just the library code? 
So we use CLI for deploying everything, building everything. But when we build the libraries, we actually have our own process. Um, uh, so because we have to like compile the tab script, the SAS, and, 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 and I can talk about it a little bit later. But we do have a separate process for the library compilation to publish it on NPM. Uh, but just for products, like the concrete implementations of like everything, when, when it's like, kind of going to like it's going to be like the UI for a product, uh, it all, all of them use the CLI. So I'm trying to say to everybody that use Angular CLI from early days because uh, this is a good way to standard design, uh, stand, make it standard things. Forgive me, I cannot pronounce it. <laughs> so uh, the more, of course, the more developers use Angular CLI, uh, the better community becomes in general. Why? Because everybody uses a simple thing which allows them to create new application or update current existing one in same small way so it's easier to share knowledge but again for um building the library i, have, I actually built my own cli tool because i was supporting several uh several libraries and imagine like five libraries and then there a new version came in of angular and you have to update each one manually now it was annoying <laughs> so i built small cli which just helps me helps me to do that and more of it uh, i have found that uh, building your, for example, you work with a library and it has, uh, like in source, it has different separate package JSON. Then you can build it inside of your like folder and link it to the node modules of itself. Then you, when you go through, for example, into end integration testing and you're building your application with OET, you already know that your library will work with it. And it was really important in some days, like, Year, year ago, when there was always the problems with AOT, and it, until version 2.3, most probably, it was always complaining about something without any like hints where it broke. Yeah, for me, like, the C I wish the CLI, and uh, you know, I, I heard a rumor that it might be coming in 2.0. Is that right, Rocky? Yes, uh, that's one of the targets that we want to hit uh, with the revamp that we're currently designing for right now um, is to support building libraries, whether or not they're component libraries or something that's uh, purely backend related, uh, similar to like Angular Fire 2 that nece doesn't necessarily necessarily have any components associated with it, but building libraries, uh, including component libraries with the CLI. So while you're here, will you allow it someday to extend as a webpack config? Because it's really good <laughs> feature. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That, that's also on the road. Isn't that so your? Yes, there's going to be an interim in between uh, the default CLI owning the webpack configuration and a fully check. There's going to be other hooks into the build process as well. So, recorded, tweeted, promised. <laughs> uh, on just about every episode for the last four months. <laughs> I was say, I feel like I've heard this before. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's definitely something that's discussed a lot, which is good because then more and more people are showing that, that they need that or want that, right? Well, um, 
I have a tool that we put out uh, called Playground for Angular that we use for um, developing components in isolation, and it really helps us for doing these, um, you know, standalone component development. It's basically think about if you've seen React Storybook or something along those tools. It's this ability to take your components and run them in isolation, and then write scenarios for them. So, for example, you have a address component and you want to um, have this address component, it's gonna support, when it's a shipping address, it's gonna show an attention to line, and when it's not a shipping address, and it's a billing address, it's not gonna show that. And you can stage these scenarios for your components to render them standalone in the browser and see that happening. So now you can work them, um, you work the template, work the styling, work the logic around there, and uh, without running it within your existing application. And I think that's something that's really handy, especially when we're talking about library building and stuff like that, is the ability to, to do these things. So um, that's a tool that. What's that? I think, I think this is the perfect opportunity to schedule another show. Where you can demo and yep. show us all your playground off these yeah, things. Just give us a little teaser. Can you give us a teaser? I, I don't know. Yeah, I can give you a link to the talk that I did <laughs> up at the Angular Mountain View where I showed it. Um, let me throw that out real quick. But um, yeah, we can schedule a show to talk about it. I, it it's become real handy for us because it's it's killer because it's you know you need this host to to run these things and you can see you know and if you have your existing app like the example I always like to give is I I have an app that that manages customers right and manages orders and I'm working on the shipment line item component for that. And now I need to launch my app and find a customer that has orders, that has shipments, that has the line item that I need, just to see it running in the browser, right, to get to that while I work on it. And so this allows you to just bring up that shipment line item component and work that directly, um, and then use that as places. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll check that out on a later show, and I'll, I'll throw that link up, but that's one of the tools we use. Um, but around documentation, let's talk about that really quick. Um, in terms of, you know, with a library, you have this, I want to show everything that's that's in the library. You know, you have material and you want to say, here's the 40 components that we have available in the library, or like the um, NGX UI stuff and the, the data tables things, awesome that you have. Like this this way to show documentation for people that consume that. Like, like what are our solutions for that? Look at the source code. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I try to build demos. I think if you can build demos and plunkers, like when people have bugs, like it's really easy for them to like manipulate that plunker and then share that for you. So I like to kind of build demos uh, to try to educate people and then I just have some like basic markdown. I don't feel like there's a lot of auto-genning of documentation and I always see that documentation. I'm like, this means nothing to me because it's just a bunch of auto-generated stuff and I'm like, I would just rather look at the source code at that point. So that's just my personal preference. Uh, the funny thing is that uh, when we, like Plunker is all, definitely a good way to go, uh, like Austin said, but even if you have the markup and you try to like, like say what the inputs do, most people just go into documentation and start to copy and paste everything they see as a markup. And then they're like, it's not working. And we're like, well, it's because it, it's not, it doesn't have real values. It's, it's, it's just an example. So what we try to do is basically show proper examples with l real code, tab script, HTML, and SAS, where they can just copy and paste it and be, and, and be good to go for the initial uh, part of it. 
Uh, our documentation is still growing, uh, so there's a lot of improvements there, but we tried to put like different examples of uh, different uses that are real cases um, to help out people. Okay, so we're, we're getting to the top of the hour, so we better wrap up, but um, just another quick note on documentation. Next week's episode is going to be about creating and maintaining documentation with Angular and using some stuff to do that. So um, that'll be a good jump in for the next week for everybody tune in. But let's get to our uh, picks real quick, and we'll wrap this thing up. So I'll go first real quick. My picks are just a couple shows. I finally got around to binge watching Stranger Things, and I loved it. And being a child of the 80s, it's, it's pretty awesome, and I can't wait for season two. So I'm still thinking about it, and I just binge watched it like two weeks ago. So it's still on my mind. And then Silicon Valley started up again on HBO. Um, fun tech, hilarious show, so you guys should check it out if you haven't. Um, Austin. Yeah. My dog wanted to say hi. Now she doesn't. Um, Silicon Valley. Oh my gosh. Uh, yes. That's one of my picks. Uh, Chrome DevTools now supports async await step over. Oh, so much needed. Uh, a blog post by uh, Miko. I can't say his last name. Seven Angular tools you should consider. Awesome read. And then while we were talking about uh, Angular Playground, Component Lab is another one by Mike Ryan who does NGRX. And it is also a very nice uh, demo test bed type environment for creating those. So that's another alternative if you don't like Justin. <laughs> No, the Component Lab's awesome, too. You guys should check that out as well. Um, it, it has a discovery mechanism. The Playground is more of a you're working in an individual component, whereas the Component Lab kind of has this discovery uh, mechanism built in. But, yeah, definitely check those out. Check anything out that's, that helps you build your library for sure. Um, they got a cool thing, the Component Lab. Mike, what do you got? Um, as I've, uh, over the last week or so, I've started to get a little bit more prepared. Um, definitely. The excitement for me is building up uh, for NG Cruise. Uh, it's about a month away or so. So I cruise, cruise, think, cruise, cruise. yeah, what she said. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, very excited. Not sure if tickets are still available. I think you can still get tickets. Um, but if you're going, looking forward to hanging out and spending a week on the open seas. Cool, Alyssa, you got something? Um, I have a couple small lessons on egghead.io, but I'm actually finished a week ago a Canvas course. So I, it's like in the queue to be deployed. I'm really excited about it. So check it out if you want to ponder Canvas with me. <laughs> That's all. Sweet. Awesome. All right, Ed, do you have anything? Yeah. Uh, well, I just my pick for it's the the hundred the show I started watching like a week ago. I, I'm probably late for the for that, but it's just one of those shows you like. I kept watching it and I was like, mm, should I should I actually start seeing it? But it's actually pretty good. <laughs> I like that show too. Yeah, that's pretty cool. All right, and Dimitri. So my pick will be for the last half of a year. I'm speaking a lot of with David Pinch, and I'm watching how Angular Beers community grows really, really rapidly, and communication in so in inside of those slacks and meetups seems to be really positive and you know friendly to each other. 
and hopefully I will see you guys at Angular Camp in July 6 and 7 in Barcelona. So it should it's organized by the same guys who you know uh, grows this Angular abuse community. So it should be pretty positive and very cool and you know extraordinary I would say because it will be not the same conference you are used to in general. Yes, Angular Beers, Angular Camp, uh, great communities, right? They're doing a lot of stuff for our just community in general in Angular, so it's totally awesome, yeah. Uh, Cinema.js, is that involved in that too? Do you know? No, not sure, unfortunately. I, can, I will see my Slack in a second, I suppose, but it will be a bit later. <laughs> cool, cool. All right, well, big thanks to Ed and Dimitri for joining us today. Talk about building component libraries and all of our panelists. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the time. And we will see everybody next week. Take it easy.